Family lines. We all have them. They are strings of influence, living legacies, and patterns passed on. Within these lines, past and present meet, sometimes violently. They are bonds connected by beauty and pain. They are ties of failure and gain. They are pathways of blood and spirit. They are the powerful stories we inherit. So cool. Hi, everybody. Welcome to church. So good to have you. Um, if you didn't notice, uh, that piece of art is actually out in the gathering area. So check it out. Don't steal it, but it's awesome. Um, take a look at it. Uh, it's just a great, uh, great piece. Uh, we just have such an incredible team, and our communications team has put a lot of that on. They helped me with a lot of what is going to happen in this message. So we have an awesome team at this church. Um, okay, hi, I'm David. It is so good uh, to be here with you. Uh, every once in a while, I get to come and uh, share the word with you. Uh, my my family and I have been around here for a little over a decade now and uh, just love this home. So uh, you guys ready to dive into the word? Yeah. All right. Okay. So here's the deal. We're in week two of our blended series. Now this series honestly is just our gift to you uh, because just give till it hurts. But here's the deal. Three and a half weeks from now, you will be sitting around a table with all your not so awkward family. And we'll be sharing all those moments that uh, never give you pause and say, why are these my family? Um, but we thought just in case you know some people uh, that have a difficult time around Thanksgiving or other times, we just wanted to share with you some tools for how to have Jesus-looking moments around Thanksgiving. And I, I, I love the way, how many of you guys get the rundown? That like every, you get an email every once in a while that kind of gives you information about our church. The way they described why we're doing this series is to give you tools to deal with Aunt Ruth's tuna tartar jello bites. <laughs> Which, <laughs> can you, I was, oh, I was trying to imagine that, it just sounds terrible. But, um, so before we dive into that, I, I wanted to acknowledge something that happened this week, um, that happened earlier this week, because uh, one, of the, one of the most common things I found in the news is that whenever you hear about pastors or whenever you hear about churches in the news, it's rarely positive. Uh, it mostly has to do with pastors that have kind of lost their way or maybe a congregation that is um, maybe not being so kind to other people. But every once in a while, I think we have this opportunity to call out hope when we see it. Um, and so I wanted to call out some hope, and it's hope in the, in the passing of somebody who was really influential for me. Uh, this week on Monday, Eugene Peterson died. Um, and if those of you know who Eugene was, Eugene was a pastor um, that was hugely influential for my own life, but also for a, a whole uh, generation of pastors. Uh, we've got a picture of him up here. Eugene was 85 years old when he died. Um, 
Eugene is probably most well known for the translation of the Bible he did called The Message. Um, So he worked for about 20 years putting together this translation of scripture. But one of his main emphases, the thing he was most passionate about, was to ignite a generation of pastors that would actually reclaim the art of pastoring, to live into the biblical imagination of what pastoring and teaching scripture could be. And what I love is he sold 17 million copies of the message. And he and his wife, Jan, never moved from the house that he grew up in. Um, That he modeled, how do you live with simplicity when you've been given a great means? When when you have this gift, but you decide, I'm going to use it for the good of the kingdom. And it is a beautiful thing, and I think it's worthy of being celebrated. Amen? Because... Sometimes we need models of people, as the title of a book he wrote says, that can live with long obedience in the same direction. And I think we need more pastors like that, amen? Amen. Um, I wanted to share with you a quote of his that I think will lead us into what we're talking about and also is my hope for us as a church. Congregation, this community, is a company of people who are defined by their creation in the image of God. Living souls, whether they know it or not. They are not problems to be fixed. You all are not problems to be fixed. You are mysteries to be honored and revered. Who else in the community other than the pastor has the assigned task of greeting men and women and welcoming them into a congregation in which they are known not by what is wrong with them, but by who they are, just as they are. How many of you want to be part of a congregation that has that as its heartbeat? I do. I do. Um, So if you don't know anything about Eugene, uh, Google Eugene Peterson and Bono. It is a Venn diagram that is a very small center. Um, And so it will bring up one result, and it's this cool interview that Eugene Peterson and Bono did. Uh, So check that out if you're, you know... Not doing anything. Um, Okay, so here's the deal. We're in week two of this blended series. And the first thing I want to mention is that we're going to be doing a QA and a with our last week. So week six is going to be a QA. and a uh, So we would love it if you would send in questions to info at whchurch.org. The blessing for me is I don't have to answer any of them. Uh, So it's... (laughs) Greg and a couple other people, so feel free to make them really hard, and specifically, please call out anything you find heretical in what Greg thinks. Um, All of that, just throw in as much as you want, Uh, but uh, please send in questions that'll be very helpful. So the title for this sermon is called Family Lines, and hopefully that'll become apparent why it is as we get into it, but last week Greg talked about the nature of our blended families. He used the illustration, illustration of the Brady Bunch, which I found to be a mildly dated illustration, so I'm going to try and update it for us, um, is that when we talk about family, it's like the, the show This Is Us, or Blackish, or Parenthood, that you've got these families that are quirky, and they're trying to figure out like who belongs here, and who belongs where, and, and what, do I, well, what do I do with that crazy person that uh, keeps showing up all the time? And Because we all have these beautiful moments with family, and we also have this painful baggage with family. It's a mixed bag, literally. And when I think of blending a family, my, my first thought is of my marriage. So my wife and I have been married 14 years, and one of the things I discovered is that when you marry somebody, whether you like it or not, they come with a family. Um, 
even if they don't physically show up, they emotionally show up in all ways you wouldn't expect. And so one of kind of the most interesting ways that it showed up initially is the way that we cook, oddly enough. Uh, So in my wife's family, her dad is a chef. So when they, when it's time for dinner, if dinner is six o'clock, they walk into the kitchen at 5.40, 5.45-ish. They empty the refrigerator of all 23 things that are in there and then have this amazing divine appointment with God where they discern what the will of the Spirit is and what, and what joyful produce he will put before them in love. And then they just, I have no idea what they do, but they make something beautiful out of random ingredients. And then there was my family growing up. Which, what my family was growing up was every meal was a calculated science experiment with, with beakers and measuring cups and the right spoons and all 12 ingredients and every meal had been planned before the beginning of time. It was this orchestrated symphony of food preparation. And, and yet, what I discovered is that when my wife and I got married, we had different expectations around mealtime. Like, There would be a night where Erica would say, David, I'm going to make dinner tonight. And I would say, yes. So we'd have dinner at 6 and it's 5.45 and nothing is happening in the kitchen. And I'm looking around going, I thought you said you were doing dinner. And she's like, I am. And then at about 5.50, she would walk in and just look at the cornucopia God had spread before her and then divine what is the essence of what the Spirit wants and then create something beautiful out of love. I know. (laughs) It stressed me out. (laughs) And here's the thing. Oftentimes, those types of issues are benign like that, right? Like that, I mean, it was serious for a little bit. We we made it through. Phew. Um, But oftentimes, those types of issues that we get from our family of origin, the things that have blended into our psyche about just how you do life in the world, oftentimes, they can be so insidious, we don't even know why they're making us stuck in certain ways. Like, they can be things that can actually affect our ability to walk with Jesus as disciples. It's like, like why do I struggle with the same thing. Like, why do I get angry about that seemingly insignificant thing that pops up? Like, why is that addiction so powerful for me? And I think sometimes when we don't look back, we miss what God is trying to teach us going forward. And look at how Pete Scazzaro, who wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, how he describes this. You may have Jesus in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. (laughs) You may have Jesus in your heart, but grandpa or grandma or that nephew or Uncle Bill, whoever it is, they're in your bones and they are affecting the way you do life in the world, whether you're conscious of it or not. Whether you're conscious of it or not, because our present is shaped by our past. And, and scientists have actually started doing more and more research on this as they, as they connect the actual pain and trauma that gets passed genetically. Um, they've done a lot of work around Holocaust survivors in this, where they actually can mark out a genetic code that connects with the trauma they experienced, and they've actually seen it get passed from generation to generation to generation, that same genetic pattern, and 
the kids don't know what they have, but they've inherited it. And so I think one of our jobs as kingdom people is to investigate what we've inherited. And so our question today is, what have you inherited from your blended family? Got very quiet. (laughs) And we're going to talk about our earthly families. What did we get? How do we get it? How does it show up in our life today? And this is a topic that scripture actually talks about a lot because the witness in scripture actually cares a lot about what we inherited from generation to generation and and wants to implore us to pass on the things of God. But oftentimes these texts get dismissed or overlooked or misunderstood. And so we're going to dive into the deep end because that's what we do here at Woodland Hills, right? Yeah, we don't like the easy stuff. That's for some other church. We're going we're gonna to get the meat and get confused. So, uh, so we're going to start in Deuteronomy 5. So if you have your Bible, you can open that up. Or if you have an iPhone, you're welcome to pull it up there or some other device. Uh, but here's what it says in Deuteronomy 5. This is part of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, which is the Hebrew word kanah. Punishing, which is the Hebrew word pakad, and we'll come back to those. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. I like to say that verse every night to my daughter as she goes to sleep. It really comforts her. Um, Okay, so what is going on here? Because one of the things I've learned being around this church for a long time is that when we run into texts like that where you just kind of go, what? Like, that does not look like the God revealed in Jesus. I mean, it makes God seem rather... Um, angry or, if nothing else, unfair. So the question is, what else could be going on here? So we're going to dive into, and I think the two most problematic parts of this uh, uh, couple verses is, one, the explanation of God as a jealous God. Because when I think of jealousy, I think of somebody who's insecure, somebody who's petty, Somebody who's kind of immature, it's like, is God this immature God who's just like trying to make sure he gets his? And yet what's interesting is that this Hebrew word kana is only ever used to describe God. There's a different word that gets used to describe jealousy in people. So there's something unique in this version of jealousy. And um, in the, so, so the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and then it got translated into Greek in what's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, they don't translate this word as jealous, they translate this word as zealous. That God is not a jealous God in the way you think of jealousy, that he's zealous. And another translation also says that he is impassioned. And so I think the connotation that we're supposed to get out of this is that God is not like jealous in like a petty way, but he is zealous in that he is not indifferent about you. He is not apathetic about you. That he sees you as something so precious he's willing to protect it. 
It's like when I'm officiating a wedding, when, when, when this couple is coming together, my prayer for them is they would be jealous for their marriage. That they would fight for their marriage. That they would come together and say, we're not going to let anything get in the way of this. And I think that's what God is saying about you. That God is jealous for you in that way. He's zealous for you. He's impassioned for you. He's not indifferent about you because he sees you. Which then leads us to, I think, the more problematic part of this verse, which is the part that says God will punish the kids for the sins of the parents. Which is this Hebrew word, pakad, is this word punish. When, and what's interesting is that if you look up in a Hebrew dictionary what the word pakad means, punish will be about way down at the bottom of the potential meanings. That 99.9% of the time, that word means to visit. It can also mean to respond So I think what's really going on here is that this verse is telling us God is impassioned for you. He's zealous for you to the extent that when you screw up, he's going to visit your kids to actually respond to your sin to bring something beautiful out of it. So that we serve a God who says, I'm not leaving them alone. I'm actually going to show up in the midst of it. And if, that were, if this were just that one verse that we were dealing with, there could be some confusion of what's going on here. But I think that we really start getting more at the character of God when you look at verses like Ezekiel um, that we'll pull up here. Ezekiel 18.20. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged to them. And then again in Deuteronomy, uh, just a little bit after the passage we read, parents are not to be put to death for their children nor children put to death for their parents. And then it gets real happy. Each will die for their own sin. (laughs) Good news. So, I think that these texts, while they feel contradictory, are trying to wake us up to a paradox. It's a paradox that on the one hand, I am responsible for everything that I do. And on the other hand, somehow the sins of my parents are getting passed down to me. And they're getting passed down to you. That I think one of the lessons to be learned out of these texts is to wake us up to a more holistic perspective on how sin actually works. That what I do affects other people. That who we are today is defined by our past to one degree or another. That no person is an island, right? Which naturally leads to this important question. Why are the gophers so terrible at football? <laughs> I know you see it. You see the logic. It's, it's immediately apparent. So here's the question. The Gophers have won seven national championships. It's great. When was the last one? 1960. (laughs) 58 years. 58 years of massive football incompetence. (laughs) So the question is, why? You could say, well, they've had a string of terrible quarterbacks. 
You could also say they've had a string of terrible running backs, a string of terrible wide receivers, a string of terrible offensive lines, a string of terrible defensive line, a string of terrible coaches, a string of terrible recruiters, a string of terrible alumni. Sorry if you're an alumni. Um, a string of terrible taxpayers who aren't paying the right thing, a, a string of terrible coaches, a string of any number of things like that, which begs the question, which one of those is it? All of them? None of them? A hundred other things that we couldn't have thought about? And, and yet I think what, 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 what I'm trying to get you to see is that it is impossible to whittle down a systemic issue to an individual solution. That it's impossible to say that, well, this big picture issue really just boils down to that one quarterback who missed a pass one time. Which applies to football, but also applies to our families, right? That I can't just whittle down Aunt Ruth's tartar jello bites to be the problem why our family is screwed up. Like, it's a bigger issue, the fact that somebody thought to put that in jello bites. Like, there's a systemic issue here, which, which, which obviously has broader implications. That we can't just boil down one individual action to a systemic problem which is true in football, it's true in family, and it's true culturally, right? That it's true of poverty. Like, I, I can't just walk up to somebody who's struggling with poverty and say, would you just get a job and then fix the problem for me? Because it's a bigger issue, right? It, it, or, or it's a bigger issue um, with, with something like racism, where it's bigger than just one person's racist comments, it's a system that allows it to exist. It's a system that, that actually is okay with it in one way or another. It's like um, on Hiawatha Avenue right now. For any of you that have driven down that recently, if you're driving south on the right-hand side, there are about 300 tents. There's a tent city that has built up over the last three months right in that area south of Minneapolis, in eye shot of U.S. Bank Stadium. And the question is, why? What is that group of people doing there? What's the solution? Which you could have all sorts of political ideas of what the solution is, but I think the reality is you could try and boil it down to an individual problem, or you could start saying, okay, what's the systemic thing going on here? Because when I've hung out down there, just part of my job at Union Gospel Mission is connecting with folks that are dealing with homelessness is that the vast majority of the people that are there right now are American Indian. Do you think there may be any systemic or past issue that might make it difficult when somebody else walks up to them and says, hey, get off our land? Do you think there might be a background there that might affect what's going on beyond just saying, hey, you need to move and get a job and use that housing and maybe stop using so much. That'd be great. Like, do you think that what they're dealing with might have something to do with the 750 treaties that white Americans um, broke with them when we discovered America? Do you think that something else might be going on? And so my, my challenge for us is to say, how do we look beyond individual choices to say we are all a part of a system, that all of us have a present that is shaped by the past? I think one of the things that I would encourage us to do is that every person we meet, we see them like an iceberg, that 
all I know about you is just that tip of the iceberg. That below the waterline, there is so much more there of which you might not even know it either. And I think our challenge is to both do that for ourselves, but also do that for our family and our friends to recognize that it is far more complex than sometimes we give it um, justice. It's like that, that friend you have who every time you bring up something, he turns it into an argument. That it's a fighting match somehow and you just wanted to talk about it. What is below the waterline there? It's, it's that mom who the only way she really ever interacted with you was to be short with you and to just quickly shut you down. Maybe it was the, the grandpa who the only way he knew how to interact with you was just to yell. Or that uncle who every time at Thanksgiving says that same politically incorrect racist joke. That I think some of our job is to learn how to see below the waterline and to ask the questions. It's that, that pastor who you grew up with who made you feel small and made you feel like your questions weren't allowed here. Because part of where this begins is for us to build empathy, to build compassion, to build a sense of community, to say, I don't know why you are doing what you're doing, but I recognize that you are a part of a system just like I'm a part of a system and to start waking up to it. Because I think it allows us to give some grace. Which leads us to another part of what I want to talk about, which is I want to talk about a little bit of a case study in blended families. So this is going to be an opportunity for uh, you to just kind of sit back, relax, enter into story time with David. Um, If I had a flannel board, I would pull it out here. If you don't know what a flannel board is, God bless you. You have not been in church too long. Um, But here's what we're going to do. We're going to use a tool called the genogram. And the genogram, we're going to, I've got a little explanation up here. It's a visual map of your family line used to identify patterns you inherited, both good and bad. Which, the simpler way to think about it is a genogram is like a family tree, but it's like three-dimensional. And you start seeing relational dynamics. And mainly I wanted to do this because they said I could use a laser pointer then. (laughs) So, here's what we're going to do. We are going to start with one individual character in scripture. And I I just want to point out for the podrishioners who are listening in, just know it may be helpful for you to check out the graphics and things that will be online because this will be a little graphic heavy. So, here's the deal. We are going to start with a man named Joseph. Now, here is Joseph. Joseph was, uh, when he was in his, you know, mid-30s, he was second in command in Egypt. He was a big deal. He had risen up to the ranks and had all the power, all the authority that you could want. He was second in command of Egypt and he was just, he was right under the Pharaoh. He had power, he had wealth, he had authority, he had a wife, he had kids. Everything was going as he would have hoped it would have been. But Joseph, 15 years before that, was little Joey. And little Joey had an amazing Technicolor dream coat. You guys remember that? Uh, If my wife were here, she could come up and sing the entire musical. Uh, But y'all didn't pay enough to see that, so you get me. Um, But here's the deal. If we back out about 15 years, we get to see Joseph's brothers. So up here, we've got all the brothers. 
And the numbers on there are their birth order. So Reuben was the oldest, Benjamin was the youngest, and Joseph was number 11. And one of the things on here that we'll come back to is that there's only one sister mentioned, Dinah. Which is not because there was only one girl, it's because there's a specific part of that story we'll come back to. And if you know anything about Joseph and his relationship with his brothers, they were buds. I mean, they just, they couldn't get enough of each other. They were the greatest of friends. If by greatest of friends, I mean people that sold you into slavery. Um, Because here's the thing, Joseph was what I would call an immature leader, which means he was massively arrogant. And he didn't know he was being arrogant, but he would do things like come up to his brothers and say, guys, good news, I had a dream. It it was about all of us. But in the dream, you all happen to be bowing down to me. And I think it was telling me the future, like someday you'll actually do that. Um, So they didn't appreciate that much. And so they ended up saying, well, let's get rid of him. And they sold him into slavery. And if you take a look at what he inherited from his relationships with his brothers and sisters, the red lines up here indicate hostility. They indicate hostility in the relationships. This other line here, the, is that yellow or green? Green, thanks. I'm a little colorblind. Okay. So the green means they were buds. So the green means there was a good part of their relationship. So Joseph has a good relationship with one of his brothers and all the other 11 pretty much hate him enough to sell him into slavery. So if, if you thought you had a bad sibling relationship, match it up with Joe's. Okay, so Joseph in a single day loses his parents, his siblings, his culture, his freedom, and his hopes. What an inheritance. But at least Joseph, like all of us, had some parents. So if we zoom out a little bit, we get to see who Joseph's parents were. And Joseph's parents, Jacob was his dad, and Rachel was his mom. Which is not the end of the story, because here's the deal. Jacob was married to two women, Leah and Rachel. uh, And Leah was his first wife, but Jacob didn't want to be married to Leah. And so what happened is Jacob had come to Leah and Rachel's dad, because they're sisters, and came to them and said, I want to marry Rachel. And their dad Laban said, okay, you just need to work for seven years, and then you can marry her. And he said, well, that's a lot, but okay. And uh, so then on his wedding night with Rachel, uh, Rachel and Leah's dad slips Rachel out and slips Leah in without Jacob knowing. And they were married. So now he's married to Leah, doesn't want to be married to Leah, doesn't like Leah, but he's married to her and he comes to their dad again and says, well, that was sneaky, and, and says, can I still marry Rachel? And so he says, well, sure, you need to work another seven years. So he does, and he gets to marry both of them, which the math doesn't work, one husband, two wives, which um, then it gets even more complicated because up here there's two other women. We have Bilhah, and in the ancient world, it was really common for women to have what were called handmaids, or it'd probably be more appropriate just to say slaves. Um, And so Bilhah was Rachel's slave, and Zilpah was Leah's. And Leah and Rachel, along with Jacob, both struggled with some infertility. 
And as any of you know who have struggled with that, you'll pretty much try anything to resolve it. And their way to resolve it was to have Jacob sleep with Bilhah and Jacob sleep with Zilpah and have some kids, which they did. They each had two. And Leah and Jacob had six. And Jacob and Rachel had two. But if we take a look now at what the dynamics were in these relationships, it was not very healthy what Jacob uh, inherited. So the blue lines indicate some kind of abuse. So we have at least emotional abuse between Jacob and Rachel. We have some type of sexual abuse between Jacob and Bilhah. The same between Jacob and Zilpah. You have this interesting jagged line of hostility between Jacob and his daughter Dinah. Which in Genesis 34, there is this horrendous story of the assault that Dinah experiences and Jacob's massive indifference to it. Because she was not born of the woman he loved. So you have this experience of favoritism where Jacob favors Joseph and Jacob favors Rachel. And then you have this line here running between Bilhah and Reuben. Because Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, had an affair with Bilhah. Joseph has quite a family, does he not? But this isn't where we end because the good news is Joseph has a grandpa. And his grandpa is Isaac. And Isaac is a hero of the faith. What could possibly go wrong? So if we zoom out a little bit further, we get to this family. So Isaac is married to one wife. Well done, Isaac. And he actually loves his wife. Bonus. So this, I mean, they have a great relationship. And, and then Jacob has a twin brother named Esau. Which, if you know anything about the relationship between Jacob and Esau, they sort of carried on the tradition of sibling rivalry from Joseph and his brothers. Where there's two stories that are probably most important for their relationship. The first is that um, there's this moment where Esau is really hungry. And Jacob has made some food. So Esau comes up to Jacob and says, Hey bro, um, if you give me the food, you can have my birthright. Which is like your name in the will. And Jacob, being the not moron that he was, says, okay, that seems like a good deal. I'll take that one. And Esau gets a little angry after he realizes what he just did. And then we have this moment where one of the things that's obvious in the text is that Isaac really loves Esau and Rebekah really loves Jacob. That there is a favoritism happening there between those two kids. So, so when Isaac is on his deathbed, he wants to bless his son Esau. And Rebekah hears about this and she favors Jacob. So she tells Jacob it's going to happen. And Jacob says, okay. And he goes in and he tricks his dad. And he puts on these like furry clothes so he looks like his brother Esau. And he walks in with his low voice and talks to his dad and says, Dad, it's Esau. Give me your blessing. And his dad does it. And then when Esau comes back and finds out that his brother just stole his blessing from his dad, he's obviously really angry. And look what he, uh, Joseph inherits from this family. So we have favoritism. Isaac actually loves Rebekah. Loves those two. Isaac loves Esau. Esau and Jacob have some serious tension, would be the 
simple word for it. But we also have this abuse line between Isaac and Rebekah. Because there's a story that happens uh, where Isaac and Rebekah are coming into the land for the first time. And when they're coming into the land, Isaac has this moment where he's like, all right, um, Rebekah, you are just too beautiful. Which, if you're a wife, you know, that's a great compliment, but you're wondering what's coming next. So he says, yeah, you're so beautiful that the king in this land is going to want you for his wife. So when we're in this land, can we just like be brother-sister? Can we do that thing? Um, To which most of the wives in the room would say, no, we cannot do that thing. We're married. Uh, Which created some significant tension between these two. So we have... Some interesting dynamics here of tension and favoritism and hostility. But the good news is, Joseph has a great-grandpa. And his name is Abraham. And Abraham is the father of the nation Israel. What could possibly go wrong? So if we zoom out a little bit, we get to see the rest of the family. Wah! Follow that one. So we're going to just focus in one area, which is Abraham here. Now, Abraham had initially one wife. His first wife was Sarah. And Sarah and Abraham, like Isaac and Rebekah, and like Jacob and his wives, struggled with infertility. And one of the things they did was Sarah had a handmaid, a slave, just like Leah and Rachel did down here. And her name was Hagar. So their way to solve the infertility issue was to say, Abraham, why don't you sleep with Hagar? And when they do, they have a kid and his name is Ishmael here. And eventually, God blesses Abraham and Sarah with their own kid. And his name is Isaac, Jacob's, or Joseph's grandpa. And when that happens, Sarah is not too happy about the fact that Hagar and Ishmael are still around. And there's actually some, uh, some hints in the text that Abraham really favored Ishmael over Isaac initially. And, and so Sarah tells Hagar and Ishmael, you got to get out of here. You're messing up our whole thing. And, and so then we've got this other dynamic where Abraham has some mild tension with his son Isaac. I don't know if you remember this story, but um, (laughs) there's this moment where his dad says, son, let's go up on a mountain, and then ties him down to an altar to sacrifice him. Now God steps in and he doesn't need to, but do you think that may have stuck in Isaac's mind? (laughs) Do you think he may have had trouble trusting good old dad after that? So if, if we look at what Joseph inherits from this generation, look what we get. We get some hostility between Abraham and Isaac. We get some hostility between Hagar and Sarah. Some abuse between Abraham and Hagar. And some abuse between Abraham and Sarah. Because just like Isaac did with Rebekah when they came into the land, Abraham did it twice where they were coming into the land and he said, Sarah, you're too beautiful. Here's what we need to do. We got to do the brother-sister thing for a little while. And Sarah said, I don't think so. And it created some massive tension. And in an interesting turn of events, Esau down here ended up marrying Ishmael's daughter. Wouldn't that be an interesting family get-together? Here's the people we don't talk to and they're all married to each other. 
Take a look at this. This is four generations of Joseph's family. This is the family through which God would reveal himself to the entire world. What a train wreck, right? These are God's messengers. And the reality is nobody has a clean genogram. Nobody does. Joseph inherited deception. He inherited lying. He inherited favoritism. He inherited abuse. And we all carry scripts, right? There's all narrative scripts we're carrying because our present is shaped by our past. And the real implications of this come out. Look at this other quote by Pete Scazzaro. He says, the great problem, of course, is when our family's invisible scripts are contrary to Christ. And when the family commandments passed on to us are so deeply embedded in our DNA, we can't even discern the difference. That's when the results become tragic. Because discipleship is supposed to be this putting off of our baggage and our hang-ups and our past and our sin in order to put on the beauty of who God says you are. And, and yet, even as we're trying to do that, we've got all this lying and deception and favoritism and abuse that's all intermingling with it. And yet God says to Joseph just what he says to you, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And it wasn't the end of Joseph's story. Because look at this genogram again. We have a picture of the family, of what it was, but look what it transitions to. Watch the green show up. Because we have reconciliation between Joseph and all of his brothers. We have reconciliation between Isaac and Esau. We have reconciliation bet or between Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael. And so we have these hints of what we saw in Deuteronomy 5 of God saying, I'm going to visit you in the midst of your past and respond to it to bring something beautiful out of it. Because that's what I do. And look at how Joseph notices this in Genesis 45. He says this, he says, it was not you, he's talking to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here to Egypt, but it was God. And then in Genesis 50, you intended to harm me, brothers, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That Joseph, I think, had the eyes of God to be able to say, I know that I carried baggage. I know what my family genogram looked like. I've heard the stories. But God visited me in the midst of it to redeem and restore something out of it. Which, if it's true for that family, how much more is it true for you? How much more does God want to show up and say, the most true thing about you is what God says is true about you, not what your family of origin looks like. That what is true about you is that God says, you are beautiful. You could not have more worth than you do. Over and above all the messages and the lies and the deceptions. And we have to practice these truths all the time. It's why singing songs like the one we sang where we said, I will find all of my life in you. You are always enough. Over and above anything else that I might have gotten, over and above any message I may have heard because Joseph, I think, heard the same message as we do. He heard the message that said, I don't have the right to exist. I think he heard the message that said, my life is a mistake. And in the midst of that, I think God visited him 
and said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I didn't screw up when I made you. I didn't screw up when I made you. And I think Joseph heard the same lies that we hear. When he heard somebody say to him, I'm worthless. And I think over time, God was able to convince Joseph, and I think we can even be more convinced of it now that you are worth dying for, that we saw that in Jesus. And I think that Joseph heard the same lie we do. He heard the lie that I can't trust anybody anymore. I can't believe anybody anymore. I shouldn't feel anymore. And I think God spoke into his life and said, you can be strong and courageous, not by your own power, but by the power of God in you. That that is the truth. Over and above anything else we believe. Because here's what I want to tell you. You may have grandpa in your bones. But the truest thing about you, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, is that you have Jesus in your heart. That you may have that person in your bones. You may have all the deception running through your veins. But the truest thing about you is that Jesus says, I've redeemed you, I'm for you, and there's nothing you can do about that. That your job is to take it in and receive it. And I think what we need to know is that as God visits and responds to your own story, he can redefine your blended family patterns into something beautiful. He can do it. He's been doing it for a long time. Because we serve a God that says, I want to visit you. I want to respond to the stories of what you've received because I'm zealous for you. I am impassioned for you. I'm not apathetic about you and I'm going to meet you where your story's at. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. So the deal is we can't do that alone. None of that happens solo because there's too much lies There are too many of them stuck in our brains. So I want to encourage you, whether it's coming up and praying with somebody after this service, whether it's meeting with one of our lay counselors, whether it is going to a refuge group, whether it's going to a growth group to begin this journey, to begin the process of saying, I want to wake up to the places where God is visiting and responding to the story. So I'm going to invite you to stand And as you stand, I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come up. And if you have anything you would like to pray with these folks about, they would love to pray with you. And as we close, I'm going to just invite you to stretch out your hands and receive a benediction. So as you go, may you know that God is zealous for you. That he is impassioned for you. He is not indifferent about you. And may you wake up to all the ways that he is visiting and responding to your unique families. And he's responding to them with the, wor- with the words that you are worth dying for. And that that is the truest thing about you. Amen. 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 Go in peace. Have a great week.